Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, Fall of the House of Sunshine is offering episode commentary to Fable and Folly Plus supporters, still entirely ad-free. Fable and Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus. In this world, there are more stories than snowflakes in Antarctica. Some are symmetrical, some are pointed, some melt before they find love. But they're all worth catching on your tongue, so open your mouth wide and listen. Welcome to Brushtown Stories, Episode 2, The Dan Kent Files, Eight Armed Robbery, Part 1. The Ocean. Some call it the C, the letter C, C for crime. What's crime? A collection of sour sounds in the mouth of justice. Like salt, sour salt. And what has salt? The ocean? Exactly. So what is this aquatic crime I'm talking about? Well, it all started at the city aquarium, a dank place that stank of fins and bubbles. But this certain aqua zoo had a star. Only instead of five or six points, this star had eight legs. Bosco the Osco. He was famous for predicting the baseball scores and the number of jelly beans in jars. This boneless wonder had a tank in the center of the aquarium, and when he wasn't smooshing himself in holes, he was waving his arms in a manner that denoted his lack of caring. All for the pleasure of the gawkers and looky-loos. That was until one night, the tank was smashed. Bosco was nabbed, and the world went upsy-daisy. So they called me in, Detective Dan Kent. Scene was chaos when I arrived. Lab nerds were testing for prints and collecting samples. In the corner, a sea lion was crying his eyes out, and the head aquariumist, Dr. Rachel Rubens, was front and center. She had on a blue lab coat and sensible shoes. Sensible shoes, sensible woman. I sidled up to her and asked that she dish out the details. But she was baffled, like when she was a girl and a magician pulled a quarter out of her ear, but she'd just washed her ear. I told her it was a magic trick. She thought back to that moment. A trick? Huh. I sort of ruined her sense of wonder. It was odd. You'd think an aquariumist would know about sleight of hand, but maybe that was the blind spot that let Bosco get got. She gave me the rundown. No other exhibits were touched, even the famous golden shark. A shark made of solid gold created by the mad goldsmith Madeline Goldsmith and then willed to the aquarium after a suicide. So it wasn't a standard robbery. This was a targeted octo-napping. I surveilled the scene and it was clear. Something was odd. Bosco's tank was double reinforced, bulletproof glass. This was done because there was a spate of zoological shootings in the early 70s by kelp activists that remain unsolved. But this wasn't related. All the kelp was untouched. I checked the glass. Strange, I thought. 
because it looked like some palooka just bashed his fist through the glass. But that kind of force was beyond even famous boxer Land Biscuit. There were several puddles of what appeared to be sloshed seawater, but they seemed to fall in particular pattern. A regular pattern, like... Footsteps. Soggy footsteps. I bent down to get a closer look, and then a closer taste. I dabbed my finger in the puddle and put it to my lips. One of the texts turned my way. Salty, he asked. I nodded. But this wasn't seawater. It was brine. Pickle brine. This case just went from aquarium to aquara weird. And fast. Pickle brine has that certain power to give you a pucker, and the best pickles cause you to pucker starting from the top left corner of your mouth. And this brine was hitting the spot. These pickles were high grade. They weren't some dime store off the shelf dills. No, these were gourmet. So I left the aquarium and headed down to Vinegar Row, the pickle district. Vinegar Row was a buzz with deliveries, sellers hawking their salty wares, the olive men screaming about Kalamata versus Spanish Queen, the standard noise and scurry one of the city's liveliest neighborhoods. If you didn't have an in with the Briners, then there was no way to get them to open their sour pusses. Luckily, I had a man on the inside, an old-time soak boy I knew from my rookie days as a patrolman, Merkin the Gherkin. Merkin was a short guy who was about as tall as he was wide. He spent his days at the Sun-Dried Tomato, the local haunt for the drunks who decided to pickle themselves instead of their cucumbers. Merkin was at his usual stool, knocking back some bottom-shelf booze. I sat next to him. The bartender ignored me because I didn't have pruned hands or the classic pickler's nose. He knew I was an interloper. Everyone in the place did. And I felt their full, sour stares. I turned to Merkin. I want not here, he rasped. And then he pushed himself from the stool, hopped to the ground, and tottered out the back door. I followed him and found him lighting up a hand-rolled, unfiltered cigarette. Kills me faster, he said, gesturing with the cigarette. I don't care about your health, Merkin. I got a missing cephalopod. I heard about the squid, he replied. Don't jerk me around and call me Harriet. You know it was an octopus. You know it was a famous octopus. The famous octopus. I then added a few choice words I'll omit here, lest you think me a complete brute. Merkin was unfazed. I'm unfazed by that, he said. He then went on to claim complete ignorance to the crime. I took out a vial of the brine I'd collected. He held it up to the light, where you could see its slight amber hue. That's pure, he marveled. Who brewed the brine, Merkin? He let the question hang in the air. I asked it again. Who brewed the brine, Merkin? I suggest you leave it. These people, the people who can make this sour sauce, aren't little day picklers. They're lifers. They're hard. So am I, I countered. I'm so hard right now, you wouldn't believe it. The Zoya twins. But you leave me out of it. The Zoya twins had roots going back to the great pickle road that crisscrossed Eastern Europe, bringing the dill of the Kalingrad hermits in contact with the garlic men of Tarasipol. Their family helped create the modern brine as we know it. One of their great uncles, it was said, also made the formula that kept Lenin looking so glossy in his tomb. These were Kirby's in a world of Cornishons. Getting to them wouldn't be easy. But then, 
I remembered the younger brother, Yitzhak Zoyer, had a bad obsession with virgins. Extra virgin olive oils. It was common in the pickling business for men of a certain type to get attracted to olive oils. The pure oil was very hard to come by. Most of that slick stuff you buy in the grocery store is loaded with synthetics or it's just snail slime. True olive oil can sell on the black market for thousands. There's one grove said to date back thousands of years and was owned by Socrates' mom. That goo juice can get you slippery for days. Itzak Zoya's favorite hangout was the exclusive Cold Press Club, which played host to the elite of the elite. We're talking hyper-presidents and celebrities' celebrities who made movies so good they just shoot them into space. Because watching them would make you want to retire your face. Because what's the point of looking or listening anymore? Getting through that door would be hard. I pushed on it hard, but it wouldn't budge. It's a pull, a voice behind me said. I turned. It was a stunning young woman in a black gown, stood there, arms folded, her neck dripping in diamonds and her fingers covered in soft black velvet gloves. Oh, I said. Then I pulled the door and it opened. I held it and let her walk inside. I'm surprised they're open at this time of day, I said. We run on super time. It's like regular time, only better. And in super time, it's exactly the right time to be open, she replied, in a tone that sounded like even the most interesting thing, like a rocket launch or a frog, was boring to her. You work here? Sure. Nice place. I like all the, what's it, light switches. Those old things? They were a gift from the king of Minnesota. Who? Exactly, she replied. Oh, you're serious? I, oh... Are you actually a norm? I thought we were playing a game where you pretended to be ordinary. Several members like to be humiliated by pretending to be ordinary. I'm Detective Dan Kent, police inspector, and I need to speak to Yitzhak Zoyer. She went into her purse and took out some lipstick, applied it to her lips. It had a soft red glow that lit up the room. She noticed me, staring, and said that it was made from some kind of crushed up cave worms. Its glow had driven famous spelunker Givens McDiggins mad, and his widow, in revenge, had turned all the creatures in the cave into various beauty products. I'm not here for cave history, I shouted. I want answers. There's a missing octopus, and I need to find it. Bosco, she seemed, for the first time, perhaps in her life, to show emotion. I'd do anything for him. He had the best sense of humor. She wiped her eye, though I didn't notice any tears. Well, let's hope he'll be back doing his ten minutes at the Comedy Hut on Thursday, but it won't happen unless you let me in. This is a private club, Mr. Dankent. Even if I wanted to help Bosco, and I do, I can't just let you go noshing your way into... She was cut off, mid-word, by the ring of a solid jade telephone. She walked over and answered it. She listened, said nothing, and then hung up. She turned back to me. It looks like you're in luck. She tapped on a section of the solid black lacquer wall and a drawer popped out. It was filled with small cards of different colors. She took out a deep green card with a triangle printed on it, handed it to me. Take this to the jungle door, knock three times, and then put this through the slot. She then opened a part of the wall and ushered me inside. The interior was a long, dark hallway covered in red velvet. 
There was also some nice crown molding. I'd wanted some for my apartment, but my contractor just stapled some slices of American cheese to the wall, said that was crown molding. At the time, I believed him, and soon I had mice hanging off my wall. I called him up and I said, I got mice hanging off my wall. He said, that costs extra. He sent me a bill. And a few months after paying it, I was working a case and the perp had an issue of Crown Molding Magazine on his desk. And I was shocked about the truth regarding Crown Molding. And also that he murdered so many people. Anyway, back to the hallway. As I walked, I passed several doors of various colors or themes. I finally reached one that had a nice jungle scene painted on it. I particularly enjoyed the tiger hiding in the leafy foliage. I knocked three times, waited, and a slot opened. I put the card in and then opened the door. Inside was oddly bright. A naked fluorescent bulb hummed above me as a man in a striped Oxford shirt sat behind a rickety card table. He pushed up his glasses, but in doing so, left a greasy thumbprint right on the left lens. He coughed. I approached him and asked, Itzak Zoyer? Me? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, not even a little. I wish. <laughs> imagine? I mean, really imagine it. I tried, but it was a bit too abstract for me to get a mental image. So, I asked. He half smirked. I'm just here to give you this. He handed me a bright pink envelope. I opened it, and inside was a thrice-folded crisp piece of paper on which was typed, Sorry, we can't help you. The word can't was underlined. Okay, now see yourself out. Back the way you came. Is this a joke? I banged on the card table. He shrugged and then fell asleep. There was no waking him. I considered leaving, but instead decided to barge my way in somehow. I stormed back into the hallway and started banging on doors, yelling words that would have turned my grandma into my grandpa. Finally, I pressed on a golden door with an octagon on it. It slowly swung open. I stepped into a dimly lit round room. The walls were covered with a mural. It was like one of those religious paintings you see in a church with saints and sinners and all that Bible nonsense. Only the heads of all the people were olives. On their eyes, two olives with pimento pupils staring at me. Suddenly, the lights changed and a small trap door opened in the center of the room, revealing a small pool of olive oil. The lights swirled and changed colors. Then, up through the center of the olive oil, a lady emerged, wearing a bikini, and now dripping with the stuff. Her hair glistened. She looked me straight in the eyes. She was beautiful, like one of those dames you see in upscale furniture catalogs, and I would have bought whatever credenza she was selling. I tried to form some words, but my mouth was dry and useless. She started to dance, gyrate from side to side, and then shimmy up and down, cupping handfuls of olive oil, letting it run down her body. She whipped her long, black, curly hair around, flicking drops of olive oil around the room. It was hypnotic, her slippery body and seductive dance. Then the lights changed again. The mural began to glow like it was under black light. The olive eyes of the saints all seemed to turn and look right at me, staring into my very soul. The woman stood stone still but said, In the ancient days, they anointed kings with olive oil. 
Divinity cannot be bestowed until their brow is marked with oil. Oil is the divinity of the world. I barely had a second to figure out what the yam she was yakking about when a large door opened in the wall and a monster emerged, reeking of garlic and spice and dripping brine. It reached out its giant arm and conked me good. And with that, everything faded to black. Brushtown Stories is a Roy Gold production. It was written by Jonathan Goldberg with music by David Riglieri. Dan Kent is Nate Kent. Find out more about the show and cast at podmusical.com. Find out more about yourself in the mirror. Has that mole always been there? You need to take care of yourself, man. Thanks for listening, and have a suntabulous bicuspid of a day. I called him up and I said, I got mice hanging up my wall. He said, that costs extra. He sent me a bill. A few months after paying it, I was working a case and the perp had an issue. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, here we go. We'll do the whole paragraph. It'll be, It'll be great. Let me pause it. It'll be great. It'll be great. The Fable and Folly Network where fiction producers flourish.